God is an empathetic God. Like he genuinely knows what you are going through. The most profound and helpful thing that I clung to after Cam died is that I worship a God who also knows what it's like to lose a child. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm so thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with author Cameron Cole. Today we'll be talking about the topic of sudden tragedy in Cameron's book, Therefore I Have Hope. We'll discuss Cameron's own personal experience of tragic loss, some of the raw emotions and thoughts that arise when we face unexpected bereavement, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ comforts and sustains us in times of excruciating grief. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Cameron Cole serves as Director of Children, Youth, and Family at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, and is the chairman of Rooted, a ministry dedicated to fostering gospel-centered student ministry. He is the co-editor of Gospel-Centered Youth Ministry and the author of Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. Hey there, Cameron. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Christine, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Today's conversation is a heavy one. I have to admit that I cried several times while reading your book. It's called Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. And your writing was so raw and vulnerable, it really served to help me to understand some of my own overlooked areas of grief since my dad's passing in 2011. Before we get started with our conversation about leaning onto gospel, hope, and help during sudden tragedies, would you take a few moments to give the audience an overview about the loss you and your wife experienced, which is really the driving narrative in your book? I've been a youth pastor for 14 years, and you know my biggest fear uh, as a youth pastor and you know, say the first 10 years was, you know, of course I believe that God is good. Of course I believe the promises and the uh, the truths of Christianity, uh, who wouldn't believe that if you're Cameron Cole? I mean, I'm a white American male. I grew up in a family where my parents were really kind and loving. They're Christians. They told me they love me every day. My parents are fluent, so I had, you know, materially everything I ever really could have wanted as a kid. You know, I, I everything kind of went my way in life. I, I you know, kind of made the teams. I got into the college I wanted to, had friends, all that kind of stuff. I had very few setbacks, no tragedies. And so, um, you know, I kind of had this fear that, yeah, you know, of course I believe in Christ and the gospel, and I believe that God is good because, well, I've had such a nice life, it makes sense. Mm. Uh, And so my biggest fear was that something really bad would happen to me and that I would lose my faith and uh, and I would leave my students high and dry. And then, you know, the thing is I would think about what is it that, um, what is it that caused me to lose my faith? And the thing that I would land on was the death of uh, my my child. Uh, at that point, I had, um, say, like I say, in 2013, I had a little boy named Cam who was three, and then we had a, a new baby, Mary Matthews, who was born at the end of 2012. 
And so I just had this real fear that something would happen to Cam in particular. It would cause me to lose my faith and it would kind of ruin uh, the spiritual lives of all my students. And so, so that was kind of my two-folded worst nightmare. So on November 10th of 2013, I had this remarkable conversation with my three-year-old son, Cam, and he had lost the Lego axe. And we, uh, he asked if we could ask Jesus to find it. So we prayed <laughs> and said, you know, Lord Jesus, nothing is lost in your eyes. And please help us find Cam's Lego axe. And we found it. And he said, you know, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then he started to ask a lot of questions about Jesus. He said, can we go see Jesus today? I said, well, buddy, you can't, we can't go see Jesus. He's with us here. You can't see him, but he's with us. He said, well, can can we get in the car and go see Jesus? And I said, well, you'll see Jesus when you get to heaven. But for now, we just have to trust and know that through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is with us now, even though we can't see him. So he started to ask questions about heaven. He said, uh, well, I see Adam and Eve in heaven. He was fixated on Adam and Eve. <laughs> we, had been reading, we had read uh, Genesis 3 and he had all kinds of questions about them. And I said, yeah, God forgives their sins. And it seems that you will see Adam and Eve in heaven. And he said, well, I'm not going to eat from the tree. I'm going to eat the apple. And <laughs> my <laughs> wife and I said, well, buddy, everybody eats from the apple. Eats the apple. Everyone mm. eats from the tree. You know, we're all sinners. That, you know, that's why Jesus came. And he said, uh, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died for my sins. And that was honestly the last conversation I really ever had with him. I uh, kind of kind of didn't realize it in the moment, but he was really you know, professing faith in Christ. That night I went on a, uh, a, a retreat, uh, a small camp out with uh, senior guys in my youth group. I had the next morning, this was November the 11th, 2013, I had a bunch of missed calls from my wife in the span of a few minutes, and the fourth call was coming in, and I took it. And my wife said, you know, you got to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And uh, I said, well, you know, what's going on? She said, you, you just have to get to Children's Hospital. I said, I can't drive 45 minutes not knowing what's going on. She had this tone of terror. And she just paused and was crying. And she said, Cameron is dead. And it was just, I mean, absolutely shocking and stunning as a perfectly healthy child. Uh, it made no sense, and she explained that she had found him dead in his bed. Uh, he had died in his sleep, which is extremely rare for children over the age of one. It's about a one in a hundred thousand chance that a, a child over the age of one will die in their sleep. You know, this was kind of a moment of truth for my whole life because I had this fear and expectation that this is the point of departure. You know, this is when I would lose my faith, and I'd had nightmares about this and I had you know, thought about it so much and it's you know, the Holy Spirit just kind of put a word on my heart and said the thing that I said was Jesus rose from the dead that means that God is good and this doesn't change that fact and what I started to realize and unpack was that God had been preparing me my whole life for this moment God had been preparing me for tragedy uh, you know, through different experiences, but also through the teaching of his truth and the teaching of his word. And so in the month after uh, Cam died, I found myself saying to my wife over and over again, you know, Lauren, how could a person survive something like this if they did not believe in the bodily resurrection or if they did not know about the daily grace of God or if they didn't know 
about the gospel or, you know, and I kept on over and over. It was always doctrine that I was repeating. So after about a month of that, I just wrote down all these doctrines that I would, that were holding me together. And I don't mean to give the impression that I was spared of any of the pain or sorrow of, of losing a child. I mean, it's unbelievably awful. Uh, just the, the acute pain of and sorrow of losing, uh, losing a child. And I always had this sense of hope. Like I definitely didn't lose my faith. And in fact, my confidence in Christ uh, increased during this time. And so, uh, so anyhow, after a month, I wrote down all those truths and I wrote out my own little personal confession. I called my narrative of hope where I wrote about all those truths and how they applied to me and my situation. You know, God, God is sovereign. Um, your son's death is not an accident. Everything happens for a reason out of God's providence. And and I would read that, you know, pretty often during that first year to kind of bring myself under this narrative of truth. And so that's the that's the basis of my book, Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem, and Tragedy, the 12 Truths, or the 12 Truths that I wrote down a month after my son died that I found to be holding me together and giving me this theological framework that reminded me that God was good, uh, that the narrative I was living under was a, a redemptive one, uh, and to remind me that I could trust the Lord. Well, the story really touched my heart. You know, I have one son and two daughters, and I have often, you know, whether it's morbid or not, I'm not sure if this is a common experience for parents, but I know me personally, and it seems like you as well, I have thought about what if what if that moment came? How would I react? And even in the media today, you know, as we are recording this episode, there are families mourning from sudden tragedies of gun violence in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. And so there are people all over the place, all over the world who are having to be confronted with how do we respond to the horror of sudden tragedies, things that come up unexpectedly in a way that does let us still have some hope in the midst of unbelievable sorrow. And so I just want to say first off that I'm really sorry for your loss and the experience that you and your wife had to go through, but I am very thankful that you have so vulnerably shared through the book the real struggle that you had and you faced on a day-to-day basis in learning how to deal with your grief in a way that does have the hope of the gospel infused into it. I think it was really wise to open up the book with an in-depth look at what you call God's provisional grace for our initial shock when tragedy strikes. You write that in the initial moments of your worst, envisioning yourself as a pilgrim following God in the desert may be the wisest perspective you can embrace. Can you explain a little more about provisional grace and how a grace for this hour mentality can serve us well in the early stages of grief? Sure. This is advice that I am repeatedly giving to people who are suffering tragedies, who have lost children, or who are going through you know very hard times. Because in pastoral ministry, that's a large part of your job. But you know this, uh, you know when this is the advice I give someone when you know something happens and I and it's the day of and I go over to their house and I sit down with them. It's a grace for this hour mentality. You know, if you think about all that lies ahead of you. Uh, in terms of the the journey of grief, uh, it'll, it'll absolutely overwhelm you. I, I, my wife and I, the, you know, we went back to our house after you know, we'd gone to the hospital and, and Cam had been pronounced dead. And we just, we said, you know, what are we going to do? And you start to, your mind starts to project 
you know, 10 years, uh, 10 days, uh, a year, two years down the road, and you just have the sense that you are just finished, uh, that you know, making it through such pain is going to be impossible. And you start to think about you know, what's it going to be like when his peers graduate from high school and he's not there. And what's it, what's Chris, you know, he died in November, what's Christmas going to be like? And and it's overwhelming. You just it it creates so much burden and so much fear and anxiety. And you know, the reality is that the reason we cannot handle those thoughts is because we're not in those situations yet. You know, God gives us the grace uh, for what He calls us to in the moment. And so, you know, I I I've met recently with someone who uh, had a, a, a three-year-old child die suddenly. And I, he was just so overwhelmed by all that laid ahead of him. And I said, you know, let me ask you this. Do you feel like you can make it through today? He said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, that's, that's what you need. You need to block out tomorrow. You need to block out next week. And you just need to trust God for the grace to make it through today. And it's a biblical thing. That's what, that's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to entrust tomorrow to him no matter what situation we're in and uh, and to seek first the kingdom of God today uh, and you know this this mentality really came to me it was a couple of days after Cam's funeral and I saw a woman named Angel uh, how ironic uh, who had lost a child about 10 years before we did I, I'd gone to church with this woman and I didn't know her and her husband Hunter very well but uh, they their son had died when I was attending the same church that they went to and I just remember them you know, being so sad. It was so obvious in their faces, their countenance. They were so sad, but they were also functioning. And so anyhow, here I was walking my you know, baby girl in a stroller down the road, and Angel just happens to see me and pulls over, and she had known our story. Uh, and she just said to me, you're going to need to trust God for the grace to make it to lunchtime. And then after lunchtime, you're going to need to trust God for the grace to make it dinner time. After dinner time, you're going to need to trust God for the grace to make it to bedtime. Yeah. And then at bedtime, you're going to need to trust God for the grace to go to sleep. Yeah. And when we start to project down and out into the future uh, and wonder about how we're going to feel or how it's going to be or how we're going to handle things down the road, you know, we, of course, we can't conceive of that because we're not in the situation yet. Therefore, God has not given us the grace. And so, you know, it's it's uh, interesting. People will say, oh, you know, I just can't imagine, you know, what it's like to lose a child. That's the worst thing ever. And I talked to someone I know who lost her husband uh, this week. Uh, she lost her husband about 10 years ago. But we talked this weekend, and she was just said, I cannot imagine what it's like to lose a child. And quite honestly, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be in her situation, to have, you know, three children to lose your husband, to have to grieve alone, uh, to just have to carry the load for the family while you're grieving such an intense loss. You know, and here I am as a person who's lost a child. I mean, I can't conceive of loss, losing a child because it's happened to me and God's given me the grace to make it through it. Um, but as I think about you know, losing my wife, I mean, I, I really can't conceive of that. And the thing I have to come back and say to myself is, well, the reason I can't conceive of that is because I'm not in the situation. Therefore, God has not given me the grace for that situation. God gives us the grace for the things that he calls us to. And so we just need to, to break life into very small units, very small increments, 
um, and to just trust the Lord for today and ask him for the grace to block out tomorrow. And if you, if you start to think in those terms and with that mentality, navigating a tragedy, navigating a sudden loss, navigating grief becomes manageable. If it's broken down into small units where you're just trusting the Lord for the grace for those small units. I appreciated that you touched on living in denial about our losses and the real temptation to refuse to let go or to accept things as they are. When my dad died, I literally did not want to let go of his leg. I knew if I did that the loss would become somehow more official and my life would be changed forever. I avoided the room he died in. I hated walking by it every day because it was attached to such painful memories. You share about similar experiences after your son died and admit that, quote, as painful as it is, you have no choice but to walk into the darkness and to lean into the pain. So how can our desire to escape reality impair the process of grieving and healing? How does the gospel help us face the pain in a more redemptive way? Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that story uh, about your dad. It's really, uh, I, I think it's something that a lot of people uh, can identify with. The human tendency and the reaction of the flesh is to want to avoid hard things. We want to avoid and kind of uh, resist uh, entering into our pain and suffering. And you know, it's just a, a biblical reality and a reality of life that uh, you can't, you're not going to heal unless you cry the tears. You're not going to heal unless uh, you enter into uh, the 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 wound. You know, like I think one of the things I say is it's it's like when you have when there's a loss, uh, it's like you've broken your leg has been broken, and uh, you know if you have a broken leg, there's just a reality that you're going to have to set the bone and it's going to hurt really really bad, and then after that you're going to have to get a physical therapy, which is also really uncomfortable and, and it hurts a lot. Uh, and if you don't do those two things, then you're, you're going to live your life with a broken leg and it's never going to get better. And so, um, and so the same thing is true, you know, with our emotional pain and with our grief, we have to enter into it and, uh, and process it and tell the story and cry the tears. And, you know, I kind of, one of the things I, I uh, an image I had and I'll tell people is, is as if. When something like this happens, there's a thousand gallons of tears that are in your heart, <laughs> and um, and it's it's such a heavy burden. Those thousand that thousand gallons of tears, um, and it just there's this pressure, there's this intense, painful pregnancy in your soul, and with every tear you cry, you know some of the the tears, some of the thousand gallons is kind of leaving your heart. Uh, and the you know in time, the more tears you cry, uh, the more that burden is alleviated, uh, and the more that painful pregnancy is reduced. And uh, you know this is I'm probably this is certainly not a medical or uh, mm. psychological uh, analogy, but that that's just kind of how I experienced it. And I think it's consistent with the gospel in the sense that Christ talks about dying before living all the time in the gospels. You have to die. You have to acknowledge your sin. You have to die. You have to admit your weakness and your need for a savior and your need for God's grace. And, you know, day to day in terms of the sanctification process, we have to recognize our need for a good shepherd to lead us and our need for the the father to give us the Holy Spirit to, 
to navigate you know whatever we're going to encounter in a given day and um, you know that that dying that weakness uh, it's painful we don't like to do it it's humiliating and I think the same same mentality of dying before you live is true with grief and you have to enter into and acknowledge the you know the reality of your grief and the uh, magnitude of your loss and as we do that that's really in a sense a way that we are trusting the lord it's a way that we are handing it over to christ to allow him and enable him um, to heal us you mentioned it earlier in the conversation but the first words out of your mouth when you heard the news of your son's condition were lauren christ is risen from the dead in the book you unpack this knee-jerk reaction and really hone in on the importance of clinging to the truth of the resurrection as our conduit of hope you explain Quote, as a person who has attended my own son's funeral, I can tell you that everything you believe will be thrown into question when the worst enters your life. Everything you feel and experience will tell you that none of these promising messages are true. Why does this despair speak so convincingly in our saddest moments? And what role does our faith in a risen Christ play in our grief? Yeah, I think that you know, one of the things I talk about, and therefore I have hope, is different reasons why people believe. And you know, sometimes people uh, have a pragmatic faith in Christ. They think, you know, well, you know, Christianity works for me, uh, and so I go to church and I do Christian things. Sometimes people have uh, kind of an existential faith where it, you know, it feels good, it feels right, and so that's what they lean on in terms of confirming and validating their faith in Christ. Uh, the the problem problem with this is if you don't believe it's true, uh, then there's going to be a day where it, Christianity doesn't quote unquote work for you, uh, and there's going to be a day where it doesn't feel like God is good. Yeah, you know, I, I said I think something I've said frequently is it doesn't feel like God's good when you're carrying your own child's coffin to a grave. And so with that being said, that's where the intellectual part of your faith is so important. That's where knowing uh, in an evidential, fact-based manner uh, that has substance, uh, knowing that, that the gospel is true, knowing that the God of the Bible is real, and that the narrative of the Bible is absolutely true, is so pivotal and so critical. It's for those moments where it doesn't feel like your faith is working or it doesn't feel like you know, emotionally God is good, you can go back, and you know, I would go back frequently and still do, and say, why is it I believe this? Well, I believe this because you know, Jesus Christ claimed that he was God, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. And the facts around his resurrection are overwhelming in terms of validating that this actually happened. Uh, and the, the alternate explanations of, of you know, the facts around his resurrection, they're, they're pitifully inadequate. Um, to try to sensibly explain what happened. You know, the supernatural explanation that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it really is the most sensible, logical interpretation of the facts around the, you know, the death and the 40 days after Jesus's death, that Jesus actually rose from the grave. And so, um, and so having that intellectual base, uh, that, that apologetic, to know that in fact, the gospel is true is so critically important in suffering because in those moments where everything that you're feeling and experiencing is betraying you know, these promises, well, you can intellectually say, you know what, it doesn't feel like God's good right now, but I know that God is good. And it doesn't feel like he is working for redemptive purposes in this moment, but he is. 
Why? Because his word says that he is. And I know that his word is true because Jesus Christ was God and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so that, I think that's, that's why, um, especially as a youth pastor now, uh, and a person who writes and speaks a great deal about grief and pain and suffering, and also you know, a person who has a real passion, uh, just a passion for the discipleship of kids, I think that preparing kids to suffer is the most important apologetic uh, that we need to focus on in preparing our kids uh, for a life of discipleship. If we think about the crucifixion and we think about Jesus's passion, you know, would we look at Jesus being whipped and his back being shredded to bits, the flesh just peeling off of his ribs? Would we look at that and think God's doing something good here? You know, would we look at the cross of Christ and his the painful crucifixion, you know, the nails in the hands and the feet, his writhing up and down just to try to breathe a breath and all of the wrath of God coming down upon him? Would we look at that and say, God's doing something good through this. I think that that was a big reason why the disciples of Christ, they scattered. They were fearful. They thought that every single hope they had in this man, Jesus, was gone. And thus, the morning in the grief on Friday afternoon and even on Saturday, and it wasn't until Sunday morning when the tomb was empty that they finally started to realize God was doing something good through this immensely violent tragedy. And so I think it is helpful to keep that perspective and that God suffered these things for us so that we could have hope and we could have we could have that assurance that, yes, even in our saddest, most ugly, horrific moments, that God can bring something good from it because he has done it once before. And that sealed the promise that he's going to do it for those who believe in him as well. I think maybe one of the hardest things Christians grapple with when it comes to sudden, sometimes violent suffering or even unexpected loss is the concept of God's sovereignty. You know, questions like, why did he let this happen? Was he involved? Was he just not paying attention when this thing happened? Why couldn't he stop it? Why wouldn't he help? Does he even care? While there are many books devoted strictly to the topic of providence, you briefly touch on it and explain why it can be harmful to believe that God's hands were somehow tied up in the situation. However, you also address the other end of the spectrum, pointing out the harm of viewing tragedy as being a punishment from God. Would you expand on these two unhelpful views and offer some insight as to a more biblical understanding of how providence and suffering coexist? Sure. Yeah. You know, on one hand, I think that people and pastors, unfortunately, often say, you know, God didn't have anything to do with this. And they think that, you know, they're being helpful. And there's this mentality, and it's honestly a secular mentality, that God is either good or he's omnipotent. He's, he can't be both. Um, and so, you know, if he's, if he's good, then he wouldn't allow suffering and tragedies to happen. So that means he can't be omnipotent. Uh, and and they, I think there's a sense that we got to choose one or the other. Either choose that he's omnipotent or choose that he's good. The two can't coexist. And that's just not biblical. Like God is definitely sovereign in all things. And, you know, we're not saying that God, you know, there's obviously evil in the world and evil has agency and, and there are people and people have wills and make choices. And so we're not saying that God, God does not will or desire sinful things. God is not you know, delight in evil. And at the same time, like God is still sovereign. It's not like my my God woke up on November the 11th, 2013, and and said, "Oh my goodness, you know, Cameron Cole died. 
uh, how did this happen? I didn't see this coming. You know, like the Lord had intended that Cam would live three years and 55 days. Uh, that was, that's what the Bible says. That was his desire. And no, that's not, it wasn't my first choice that that was how it would go down. But I, but it, the hopeful thing for me is that God was purposeful and was in control, you know, in his entire life and in his death and in all the days afterwards. And you have to understand that if you say that God didn't have anything to do with this, well, does that, do, do, then can we really have confidence that God has the power uh, has the reach to be involved in our redemption, our healing. Um, you can't have it both ways. And so I find that it's a very comforting and helpful thing to know that God and his providence is sovereign in the good and the bad. And, uh, and yeah, he, his, his, his arm is never too long. So that's, that's one unhelpful thing to say, you know, God didn't have anything to do with that. It's just not true and it's not helpful. Second thing is this notion of karma uh, that sometimes Christians have a lot of times it's it's pretty natural, pretty human, to think that you know if a tragedy happens or there's difficulty and suffering introduced into our lives that maybe God is punishing us. Maybe we did something wrong, and so this is this is the Lord punishing us or correcting us or whatever it may be. The thing you got to realize is that you know, Jesus was punished on the cross for our sins. All of all of the, the punishment that we deserve for our sin, Jesus Christ absorbed on the cross. So Jesus has eliminated this karma mentality of thinking that bad things in our life are a reflection of God having malevolent feelings for us. That's just that's just not the case. And so, you know, and you see in the Bible too that that in Job, that one of the big takeaways from Job is the ways of God are inscrutable. We don't necessarily know why God does things. Cause a lot of Job's friends were saying, you know, Job Clearly, you've done something uh, because the, all the suffering. I mean, clearly, God is punishing you for something. And even in Job, you know, one of the oldest books of the Bible. Even in Job, you know, the the one of the messages is like Job is not being punished. We don't know why this is happening, and and but but he's not being he's not you know getting his. You see Jesus um, with the fall of the Tower of Siloam, also saying you know to the disciples and to the people. This is not because they did something wrong. They had this mentality. That was a mentality amongst Jews in the New, in the New Testament era that pain and suffering was, you know, you were being punished for something. You'd done something, and this was God getting back at you. And Jesus says, that's not what's going on here. You know? And so I think that the gospel really frees a person from feeling like their suffering, their loss is a manifestation or an expression of God's punishment against them. There was a statement in your book about doubt. You write, so many people have been spiritually abused by this name it and claim it, doubt it, go without it mentality. If you can just muster up enough faith internally, then you can beat your pain and anger through spiritual effort. You effectively heal yourself through self-engineered faith, or so the fallacy goes. What did you mean by that statement as it pertains to facing doubts, wrestling with doubts in the midst of our worst nightmares? A fair number of people have this idea that it's it's sinful or that it's wrong to acknowledge your pain to God, to acknowledge your questions, your confusion, your lament to the Lord. And so there, a lot of times, there's this keep on the sunny side mentality where people feel like they have to put on the happy face, like a faithfulness. As a Christian means that even in a suffering or in a trial that, you know, you, you act happy. And that's just not biblical. You know, we see uh, we see Jesus grieve in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Uh, we see him lament before the Lord. Uh, we see in all throughout the Psalms how uh, there are all kinds of questions that are presented before the Lord, and it's not seen as sin, it's, it's seen as faithfulness. A lot of times people think that faith is spiritual performance, whereas you know faith is, de- is depending on the Lord. It's relying on the Lord and His grace. And so uh, sometimes relying on the Lord, what it looks like is to acknowledge, God, I do not, I just do not understand this. And I am, I'm angry about this and I am confused. And, um, and that's a lot of times what it looks like to trust the Lord. And we never, we have to remember that we are talking to God, God Almighty, uh, and that he is holy and that he is all wise and he is perfect. And so we kind of come to the Lord and lay these laments and these questions of confusion at him with a sense of reverence, but we can be honest. Like we can really take our sadness to the Lord. And that's a very healthy, faithful, biblical thing to do. One of our previous guests on the Hope and Help Project, Mark Rogup, he has a fantastic book on lament. And he writes that lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So it's not the, the concept that lament means you don't have faith. It's no, if you're lamenting to God, that is one of the most Uh, purposeful, intentional ways to exercise your faith because you're taking all of these messy pieces of of your life and saying, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm trusting you. And I'm Lord, I'm crying. I'm grieved. I'm broken. I'm debilitated by this tragedy, but I'm trusting you. And so that idea that our laments are meant to help us trust in God and not that we should be ignoring these feelings, but that we engage them and bring them to the Father's feet as a means of accessing that special grace. I was really shocked to learn about the abandonment by friends and family some people experience after going through a personal tragedy. You explained that this was something you had to walk through, and sadly, it isn't all that uncommon. When it seems like darkness has become our closest companion, as the Psalms would say, and those who used to come around to visit are now distant acquaintances, how do we navigate such isolation and loneliness? Yeah, so I will say that, you know, there were some acquaintances who hit the road, uh, but by and large, like my wife and I were really blessed that we just had so many people lean in uh, to our situation and walk with us and support us. But, you know, from going to, you know, retreat with people who had lost children and, um, you know, just doing life with people who had hard things come their way, it is very common for people to have folks just abandon them. And I think a lot of it is there are people who just cannot enter into the pain. So you know, if you've lost a child, there that is a lot of people's worst nightmare. And so for them to be with you and to walk with you is just too overwhelming because it's something that paralyzes them with fear. And so, yeah, it, it is really common uh, for people who've experienced really hard sufferings to be abandoned by folks. And I think one of the things that was really helpful for me was a sermon that Tim Keller gave uh, on Psalm 22, where he talked about actual uh, abandonment versus perceived abandonment. And he said that, you know, it can, uh, you know, you can feel really lonely uh, in a season of grief, especially as things progress and you're still suffering so intensely and yet other people have kind of moved on and they're not, they just don't know that your grief, you know, six or 12 or 18 or 24 months later is still a very real present uh, thing that you grapple with. And so the thing that Keller says is that God actually abandons 
Jesus on the cross so that he would never have to actually abandon us. You may feel, you may perceive that God has abandoned you, or you may perceive spiritual loneliness, but as a matter of theological fact, like God never leaves us. He never abandons us. And so, you know, I think the the promise, the biblical promise of God's presence is something that's really helpful to cling to because of the loneliness and isolation that is so inherent to grief. We've got time for one more question. So I want to invite you to do something I ask all of our guests to do on the Hope and Help Project, which is speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is currently living in the wake of a sudden tragedy. They can relate to many of the things we've spoken about here today, but they feel so hopeless that life will move on. The pain is so raw, the hurt is all-consuming. What would you say to that person to encourage them to face reality with a narrative of hope? Yeah, I think I would say two things. I think the first thing that I would say is that God is a healer and he's a redeemer. That is that is his character, that is his property. And here I am, I'm almost six years removed from my son's death. And, uh, you know, a few months ago, I was catching up with a college friend who I talked to, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And I, we were just, you know, doing kind of the big picture catch up on how we're doing. And I said, you know, I think I'm probably as happy right now as I've ever been. This is the most content I've ever been in life. And it, we both paused for a second and realized the magnitude of that statement. Uh, because, you know, here I am. And I, you know, when you use a child, you kind of think your life could be ruined. You think that you're done, and five and a half years later, I'm really content with my life. I'm so grateful <clears throat> to be alive, and I love my kids and my wife. I, I enjoy my ministry so much. Um, I just really, I, I'm so thankful for the life that the Lord has given me, and you know, I'm really thankful for the ministry that He's given my wife Lauren and me uh, to minister to people who suffer. You know, I, it, like I said, I would not sign up for the, you know, being a person who had a child die, um, that was not my preference. And like in the wake of that, I am blessed to have a really meaningful life where I have the the credibility and the experience to, to be able to sit with people and, and just show up and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a whole person, you know, I'm, yeah, there are definitely sad moments where I get down in the dumps or where I still experience some grief over Cam's death. Um, and compared to where I was five years ago or four years ago, I mean, there's no comparison. Um, the Lord has healed and redeemed my life so much. And um, he can do the same thing for you, too. Like he turns uh, sorrow into joy. Uh, he turns mourning into gladness. And he can make us whole. And so, you know, because Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, and because he is uh, making all things new, you know, he can do the same thing in your life that he's done in my life. And, you know, the second thing I would say that is, I think is really, really helpful, and it's something that's unique to Christianity, is that God is an empathetic God. Like, he genuinely knows what you are going through. The most profound and helpful thing that I clung to after Cam died is that I worship a God who also knows what it's like to lose a child. My child died peacefully in his sleep. Uh, his son was tortured and crucified. And my son, you know, went directly to heaven. Uh, my son knew the Lord. You know, on account of our sin, Jesus experienced the eternal judgment of God um, in his death. 
and you know, and so I'm walking with and under the lordship of a God who genuinely knows what I'm going through. And that is something that is unique to Christianity. And so, the other thing I would say uh, too is that God really gets you. He gets you as someone who has gone through these things, you know, in the life of Jesus. Um, he gets these things as a father. Um, who's had a son die, and he gets your pain, understands your pain as a father, and you being his child. You know, it, it is true that as a parent, you suffer just as much, if not more, when you see your children going through pain. It just you just internalize that, and um, you have such a sense of of empathy for what they're going through, and, and that that's how God is with us too. And so, um, you're you're not alone, and you're understood by the Lord because He is He's a suffering God. Thank you so much for sharing those encouragements today. Really important, insightful words. If somebody wants to connect with you and learn more about your writing ministry or the things you've got going on, where would you have them go to to connect with you? Sure. Yeah. My um, my book, uh, you know, about hope and suffering is called "Therefore I Have Hope: Twelve Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem." And tragedy. It's published by Crossway, and it can be found you know anywhere anywhere on the internet, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Crossway's website. Uh, and then, too, I'm the chairman of a ministry called Rooted that promotes gospel-centered youth ministry. And our desire is that every child would receive grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated discipleship at church and at home. Uh, and so we have resources both for parents and for churches in terms of the discipleship of kids. And so I do a fair amount of writing at rootedministry.com. Very good. Well, I will be sure to include links to Rooted Ministry and then also your book on the show notes. So if you're interested in checking out those resources, please scroll down to the show notes and you can click on the link there. That will take you straight to the page where you can access that information. Well, Cameron, thank you so much again for talking about such a difficult, emotional, um, heavy topic, especially in today's climate where these things are front page news, these sudden tragedies that our country, um, not only families, but all of us have to either endure ourselves or come along others who are walking through those seasons. So I'm just so thankful that you took the time to write the book and to have this conversation here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Christine. It was it's always a pleasure to get to talk about the, the goodness and the redemption of Christ. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Cameron's books and resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.